Don in his prayer. Uh, thank the Lord for the anointing on our pastor, and I agree with him. I, I am so thankful that Les is anointed. <laughs> I hear that, and the first thought that came to my mind when you prayed that, Don, was, yes, thank you, Lord, because if it was just me sitting up here without your spirit, we'd be in big trouble. But the second thing that came to my mind is just to say to you all what John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. So God doesn't just anoint certain people in the church and leave the rest to grovel around and hope that maybe someday they could be anointed. No, He gives each and every one of us His anointing. And if you're sitting here tonight in belief in Jesus Christ, you're one of His own, you have that anointing, that gift of His Spirit. And with that anointing and that gift of His Spirit are other gifts that He gives and wants to pour out on you and on me. And so we share this walk together and we share that anointing together. And and Lord Jesus, I am just thankful for that. Thankful for how you did this. What a marvelous thing. That unlike the the Old Testament, the stories of old, the ancient days, the days before Jesus, when you did pour out, you did anoint kings or prophets or certain individuals. I'm so thankful in this age you chose to anoint your church and to pour out your spirit among those who believe. And so we come to you tonight believing. We come to study and to receive of your Holy Spirit and of your anointing. And pray that we would hear clearly what you have for us. Father, I pray that that the study tonight will uh, will release gifts, will release anointings, and will release us even as we leave here into the mission, the ministry of our life, which happens when we walk out the door. Father, I thank you ahead of time that you are the great judge, and the more I know you. The more I come to walk with you, the more I desire to be under the hand of the judge who judges righteously. And I could not pray with that kind of boldness if it weren't for the fact that my penalty has been paid, my judgment taken by Jesus on the cross, by your mercy. And so I I stand as one saved, not because of anything I've done, but because of Jesus, because of your grace. But I do pray, and we'll talk about this, Lord, as you know, I pray that you will still judge me and judge the thoughts and intentions of my heart and see if there is any evil way in me and purify my heart and cleanse my heart, Lord, as we all pray. And as we study this final judgment in Jeremiah, the judgment of Babylon, may we learn to judge rightly as Jesus does. And Lord Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 1. The word which the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, through Jeremiah the prophet. Declare and proclaim among the nations. Proclaim it and lift up a standard. Do not conceal it, but say, Babylon has been captured. Bel has been put to shame. Marduk has been shattered, Bel and Marduk being two gods of the Babylonians, two primary gods. 
Her images have been put to shame. Her idols have been shattered. For a nation has come up against her out of the north, and it will make her her land an object of horror, and there will be no inhabitant in it. Both man and beast have wandered off. They have gone away. When the digital era came upon us, and it came upon suddenly, Apple and iTunes and MP3 players, when they first replaced analog recordings, it reduced the music. Some of you know this, others may not. You just wondered when it first was taking place, how come the music doesn't sound as good? And that's because digital not only reduced the music to a series of ones and zeros, but it reduced the music to the lowest common denominator of sound. It just wasn't as good as analog recordings, which is non-digital recordings. All the subtle nuances of analog were lost. And suddenly vinyl records became popular again as people tried to go out and and bring back that that loss of quality for quantity. Well, it's gotten better now. I'm actually told that the naked ear can't even tell the difference, that analog is still ultimately better, but the digital is so good that we can't tell. But... It reminded me of a, of a commercial from the 1970s. I don't know why I'm thinking of 1970s commercials this last week, but I am. Jazz singer Ella Fitzgerald was singing a pure, crystal clear note, and it shattered glass. Perhaps you remember this? And they recorded the note, so while she sang it, a tape recorder was recording it. They played back the note that was recorded on a cassette tape, and it shattered glass. And the famous line at the end of the commercial was, is it live or is it Memorex? That's right. (laughs) Is it live or is it Memorex? We could apply that uh, a variation on that theme to Jeremiah 50 and 51. Is it live or is it a representation of what's to come? Now, let me explain. No doubt about it that there was a historical fulfillment to a degree of Jeremiah 50 and 51. We know Babylon fell in 539 B.C. But was it to the extent of the prophecy before us, the fall of Babylon that we're told about through the prophet Jeremiah? Did it go that far? Or did that fall short uh, as more of a representation of a greater future fall of Babylon? I bring that up because Bible scholars are divided on this. Good conservative scholars, guys that I typically agree with on this, I disagreed with this time around. And I I found various different understandings of this. Some who say, no, it was a literal, specific uh, prophecy that was completely fulfilled in the fall of Babylon in 539. And others say, well, yes, Babylon fell, but there's a greater fall yet to come. Those who would say that, are kind of out on a limb because there is no Babylon, so to speak, today. So how's it going to fall if it's not there to fall? Think this through with me. No one denies that Babylon fell. The question is, will it fall again? Some say the ruin of physical Babylon in Jeremiah 50 and 51 is a picture that John the Apostle used, borrowed against, to describe the ruin of spiritual Babylon. Revelation 17 and 18. Those two passages, as you'll see, are parallel. Jeremiah 50-51, Revelation 17-18 really go well together. Kind of like chocolate and peanut butter. <laughs> anyway, the, the two passages are sort of a type antitype. In other words, uh, an actual event used 
later for a metaphorical effect. That's, that's what some believe, that the actual event was used as a metaphorical picture of the fall, not of literal Babylon, but of perhaps what Babylon represents, maybe another center of world power, And wealth that will be destroyed in the final days of the tribulation. Perhaps Rome, some have suggested, or New York. And it is interesting if you go through Revelation 17 and 18, specifically Revelation 18, there are some parallels we could draw to the power center of our own country. Parallels you could draw to power centers of other places on earth. And some believe that's what is being talked about, that the Babylon of Revelation 18 speaks of something else, but it's just using the fall of mighty Babylon in the past as a picture. It's a possibility. Others say the opposite. The historical fall of the ancient Babylon foreshadows the fall of a future Babylon, risen, rebuilt, restored at the end of the tribulation. In other words, that Revelation 18 is not, is not symbolic, but is literal. That Antichrist will literally rebuild Babylon, that it will be the seat of his power and his authority on planet Earth, and that actual literal Babylon is what's being destroyed in Revelation 18. This is very important for us to consider, and actually I believe to answer, because it goes to our belief in the precision of prophecy, which goes to the veracity of Scripture. Jeremiah 50 and 51. Is it live or is it Memorex? We get our first clue as the Lord momentarily turns His attention back to His own people, Israel. Well, Rick, which one do you think? It'll become clear. Verse 4, God turns back to Israel. He's in the midst of judging Babylon, preparing to lay out the judgment on Babylon, and He turns to His own people. In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, the sons of Israel will come, both they and the sons of Judah as well, and they will go along weeping as they go, and it will be the Lord their God they will seek. They will ask for the way to Zion, turning their faces in its direction. They will come that they may join themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. My people have become lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have made them turn aside on the mountains. They have gone along from mountain to hill and have forgotten their resting place. All who came upon them have devoured them. And their adversaries have said, We are not guilty. Inasmuch as they sinned against the Lord, who is the habitation of righteousness, even the Lord, the hope of their fathers, wander away from the midst of Babylon and go forth from the land of the Chaldeans. Be also like male goats at the head of the flock. Verse 8 is the voice of the Good Shepherd calling his people home, calling his people out of Babylon. Israel, as you know, has had their share of bad shepherds. Kings, princes, leaders, priests, prophets. And bad shepherds always have a way of inviting the enemy in. Whether it's through stupidity because they leave the gate open, or through their own behavior because they lure and tempt and and would provide a way for the enemy to be present among them. Bad shepherds invite the destroyer into the land. And Israel's history is a picture of one bad shepherd after another. With a handful of good shepherds like David or Josiah, but for the most part, not good. Our good shepherd, Jesus, in John 10.14 says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he says, I love this verse, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. 
other sheep, not of the fold of Israel. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Note this in verse 7. The enemies here who have destroyed Israel say all who came upon them have devoured them. Their adversaries have said, we're not guilty inasmuch as they have sinned against the Lord who is the habitation of righteousness. That word habitation, note this, it's nave in the Hebrew. Nave means sheepfold. He is the sheepfold of righteousness. We are the sheep. And we find righteousness and goodness and security and salvation in the sheepfold who is the Lord. A couple of things to consider now regarding the fulfillment of this prophecy. And number one is the wholeness of the Hebrews. And understanding how this prophecy is fulfilled, is it literal but limited or is it literal but a picture of the greater fall of Babylon later? Understand this. The first clue here is the wholeness of the Hebrews. And God's focusing on Israel tells us something about when this prophecy should be fulfilled. In the first verse there, uh, verse 4, it says, In those days, and at that time, in those days, Bechem Yamim. Bechem Yamim is nearly always a pointer to the Messianic age. When Jeremiah says, in those days, at that time, it's similar in language to, behold, days are coming. Four times he says that, I believe it's four times, in Jeremiah 30 and 31. Perhaps more. Chene Yamim Baim. Behold, days are coming. Bahem Yamim, in those days. And so that's a little clue. It tends to look forward future to distant future to the days of Messiah as opposed to the immediate future. Now some would say, well, is that conclusive? Is that absolute? No, but it is a clue. But we add that to others. We notice also that verse 4 tells us the sons of Israel will come, they and the sons of Judah. Who went into captivity in Babylon? The sons of Judah. Judah. Where was Israel? Gone. This speaks of a time when not only Judah will return, but Israel will return as well. And in coming back from when Babylon was destroyed in 539, it was the people of Judah who returned to the land. But this speaks of Judah and Israel both together coming. And note this at the bottom of verse uh, 4. It says, It will be the Lord their God they will seek. Now, The exiles who came back from Babylon under Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest and 60 years later another group came back with Ezra. Another 15 years after that or so a group came back with Nehemiah. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah and study it as we have you realize all these returns seeking the Lord mostly oh they left idolatry behind but there was still sin going on. There was still a lack of seeking going on. There was still an apathy among the people as they came back into the land. More clues that perhaps the fall of Babylon in 539 is not the only thing that this prophecy is talking about. Notice also at the end of verse 5, it says they're going to come that they may join themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. They're coming back for an everlasting covenant. What covenant is that? It's the new covenant. The new covenant of Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That is all my people. 
Verse 33 of Jeremiah 31 says, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And that has not yet happened. It didn't happen in 539. So I believe absolutely this prophecy is partially fulfilled. The fall of Babylon is a picture in 539 of what is going to come of a bigger incident, of a bigger event. Put it all together, and this is a prophecy, I believe, awaiting final fulfillment, literal fulfillment, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We have the wholeness of the Hebrews, and secondly, we have the witness of history. And we'll spend the rest of the night on that. The witness of history. Reading on in verse 9, For behold, I am going to arouse and bring up against Babylon a horde of great nations from the land of the north. Every reference to the land of the north speaks of the nations that would come down from there, literally the Medes and the Persians, who are north of Babylon. Medo-Persia will come down and attack and undermine Babylon. And they will draw up their battle lines against her. From there she will be taken captive. Their arrows will be like an expert warrior who does not return empty-handed. Chaldea will become plunder. All who plunder her will have enough, declares the Lord. Because you are glad, because you are jubilant, because, oh, oh, you who pillage my heritage, because you skip about like a threshing heifer and neigh like stallions, your mother will be greatly ashamed. She who gave you birth will be humiliated. Behold, she will be the least of the nations, a wilderness, a parched land, and a desert. The Lord here gives part of the reason for Babylon's fall. Their jubilance at the judgment of Judah. The fact that Judah is judged by God, Babylon becomes that instrument of discipline, of punishment, but the Babylonians, rather than only being used by God for that discipline, rejoiced in it. Thought this is great. We are taking them down. We're taking them apart, skipping about like calves, rejoicing at their rejection. It's never a good idea to be joyful at the judgment of other people. And I have to confess, I have been. Joyful at the judgment. Someone gets taken out. Um, Well, I'm not going to give examples. Something happens and you look and you go, yes, all right, he deserved it. Take him down, Lord, all right. No matter who they might be, no matter how much they might deserve it, when God judges someone, it is not our place to rejoice in it. Not yet. There will be a time for rejoicing at the complete and fulfilled judgment of God. That time shows up in Revelation 19 as we sing, Hallelujah, righteous and true are all your judgments, O Lord. But in the time being, Psalm 119.36 says it well, My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. David doesn't say, Those people who don't keep your law, those sinners, take them out, Lord. He says, No, my eyes shed streams of water for the lost, for the wicked, for the evil in the world, for those who are caught up in sin. Proverbs 14, verse 9 says, Fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is goodwill. Goodwill. That is a true affection for people on this planet other than fellow Christians, lost people who desperately need Jesus, just like we do, just like we have. 
So don't rejoice in retribution. Rejoice instead in restoration. But that is more like the Lord. Restoration. When a sinner is saved, that's worth our rejoicing. Verse 13, Because of the indignation of the Lord, she, Babylon, will not be inhabited, but she will be completely desolate. Everyone who passes by Babylon will be horrified and will hiss because of all her wounds. Draw up battle lines against Babylon on every side. All you who bend the bow, shoot at her. Do not be sparing with your arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. He might stop and say, well, Lord, didn't she do what you told her to do? She did it rejoicing. She did it brutally. She went far beyond the judgment God called for, which was the captivity of Judah. She did it with great brutality. Raise your battle cry, verse 15, against her on every side. She's given herself up. Her pillars have fallen. Her walls have been torn down. For this is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her. As she has done to others, so do to her. And what did Jesus say? Do unto others as you would have them do unto me. Completely consistent with the Father, because I and the Father are one, Jesus said. Verse 16, cut off the sower from Babylon, the one who wields the sickle at the time of harvest. For from before the sword of the oppressor, they will each turn back to his own people, and they will each flee to his own land. Israel is a scattered flock. The lions have driven them away. The first one who devoured him was the king of Assyria, and this last one who has broken his bones is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am going to punish the king of Babylon and his land, just as I punish the king of Assyria. And we get to read about Nebuchadnezzar's punishment soon, when we get to the book of Daniel. And it's a fascinating punishment. We'll see what happened then. Verse 19, And I will bring Israel back to his pasture, and he will graze on Carmel and Bashan, And his desire will be satisfied in the hill country of Ephraim and Gilead. In those days, and at that time, again, messianic implication, declares the Lord, search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but they will not be found. For I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. And we're right back to the wholeness of the Hebrews. Again, think about this. In the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the people still had their sin issues. Not idolatry, but sin just the same. This word has not seen final fulfillment among the Jewish people. If you look for sin among the Jews, guess what? You'll find it. Just as if you look for sin among the Gentiles, you're going to find it. We are not to the place of absolute and final fulfillment here. Not yet. Read on, verse 21. Against the Lamb of Merataim, go up against it. And against the inhabitants of Pekad, slay and utterly destroy them, declares the Lord, and do according to all that I have commanded you. And I share with you that these judgments across five chapters are very poetic. And in the Hebrew, scholars note this, it's one of the most beautiful Hebrew sections of poetry in the whole Bible. These judgments that come from the Lord. And right here is something interesting. Two words that are used, names, Merataim and Pekad. These are not literal places. They're word plays that the Spirit uh, inspires Jeremiah to use. Word plays. Merataim, well, there's a place called Meratim that was the region of southern Babylon, which literally means the land of the bitter river. Meratim, 
the land of the bitter river. But here he says, Merataim. What's he saying? Well, in the Hebrew, Merataim means double rebellion. Babylon is called the double rebellion. Why? Because she rebels twice. At least two really big times. The ancient rebellion at the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11, verse 4. It will be mentioned in Jeremiah 51. We'll see in a few moments. The ancient rebellion is their first rebellion. As, as they built the tower up to the heavens saying, we will make ourselves like God. We'll build a ladder, a tower up high. An achievement, a monument to humanity. It's the great, first, first great humanist monument was the Tower of Babel. The second rebellion is the future rebellion of commercial Babylon that we read about in Revelation 18. So you've got the first rebellion in Genesis and the last rebellion in Revelation and Babylon rebelling all the way in between. But this is the land of the double rebellion. Merataim. The other word there is Pekad. Well, Pekad isn't a place. The Pukadu <laughs> is an eastern Babylonian tribe. Or was an eastern Babylonian tribe at that time. The Pukadu. Not the Pikachu. The Pukadu. You've got to make sure you get your wording right. And the Hebrew word he uses here instead of pukadu is pakad. Thank you. Bless you. It's my line. Anyway, pakad, it, it means literally visitation. But it means visitation for punishment. It's a variation on the word to visit, pakad, P-A-Q-A-D if you're transliterating in the Hebrew. The word that David used in Psalm 8 verse 4. When he says, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for or visit him? The visitation. A visitation in judgment. And as I prayed earlier, judgment's not necessarily a bad thing. Judgment can be a bad thing or the judgment of God can be a very good thing. It really depends on whom you depend at the time of his visitation. If your dependence is upon the Lord, then his judgment on you is a good judgment. If your dependence is on yourself, then the visitation of the Lord is a bad judgment. And I was thinking through this this week. I want to be judged right now. I don't want to wait. I want to be judged today. Purified by Jesus' blood. He took my ultimate judgment on the cross. But I want to be judged for the purpose of sanctification in this life. Poured from vessel to vessel like we talked about on Sunday. A life that is prepared for His coming and altered and changed, even if that means going through hard times. And He knows how to take us through the hard times. He knows how to turn up the heat in the furnace just enough, but not too much. He knows how much we can handle and He takes us sometimes right up to the edge of that. The psalmist writes in Psalm 26, verse 1, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. For your loving kindness is before my eyes. That is, your grace. Your grace is before my eyes and I have walked in your truth. And who brings us grace and truth? Jesus Christ. I am keeping my eyes on Jesus. Judge me, Lord. Because while I'm looking at Jesus, if there's some evil way in me, if there's some darkness, would you come and wash it out of me? Cleanse it from me? Lop it off if you have to with the sword of your word? But judge me now. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.17, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey 
the gospel of God. So, Pekad means the visitation of judgment, Meritaim, the land of the double rebellion. Continuing on, verse 22. The noise of battle is in the land, and great destruction. Now, note that verse, because that is also telling as to whether or not things were fulfilled literally and completely here, or at a later date. The noise of battle in the land and a great destruction. Verse 23, just keep that one in mind. How the hammer of the whole earth has been cut off and broken. How Babylon has become an object of horror among the nations. Give you a picture of horror. What are they calling the abortion doctor trial? They're calling that the house of horrors. If you've been keeping track of that whole thing, it is awful. Horror. Babylon will be called a horror to the nations, which means a massive destruction. A brutal bloodbath is what's being described here. Verse 24, I set a snare for you, and you were also caught, O Babylon, while you yourself were not aware you have been found and also seized because you have engaged in conflict, note this, with the Lord. You do not want to engage in conflict with the Lord. That's not the wrong, that's the wrong side to be on, is opposed to Him. The Lord has opened His armory and brought forth the weapons of His indignation. For it is a work of the Lord God of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. Come to her from the farthest border. Open up her barns. Pile her up like heaps. And utterly destroy her. Let nothing be left to her. So utter destruction. Nothing left. Piled in heaps. Wiped out. Completely decimated. That's the picture that's being painted here, right? Verse 27. Put all her young bulls to the sword. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe be upon them, for their day has come, their time of punishment. And the young bulls may refer to the bulls of idolatrous sacrifice, or it may re- refer to the, to the young studs of Babylon, the tough fighting men. There is a sound of fugitives and refugees from the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, vengeance for His temple. That sound of the fugitives, those are the returned Jews. These are the Jews come back into the land praising God for what He has done. Declaring what He has done to Babylon. They're declaring it now in Zion. Is this the Jews who came back after the fall of Babylon in 539? Or is it perhaps the remnant gathered together in Jerusalem at the end of the tribulation? Think it through. Hold that thought. Verse 29. Summon many against Babylon, all those who bend the bow, and camp against her on every side. Let there be no escape. Repay her according to her work, according to all that she has done. So do to her, for she has become arrogant against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. So not only did she rejoice at Judah's fall, but she is arrogant against the Lord. Another reason for severe judgment. Verse 30, Therefore her young men will fall in her streets, and all her men of war will be silenced in that day, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O arrogant one, declares the Lord God of hosts. For your day has come, the time when I will punish you. The arrogant one will stumble and fall with no one to raise him up. And I will set fire to his cities, and I will devour all his environs. Thus says the Lord of hosts, The sons of Israel are oppressed, and the sons of Judah as well. And all who took them captive have held them fast. They have refused to let them go. Note again, Israel and Judah are being referred to here. All of God's people. Their Redeemer is strong, verse 34. The Lord of hosts is His name. Their Redeemer. 
And note this, Bible students, the word redeemer there is Gaal, the kinsman redeemer. It is talked about throughout the scriptures that Boaz is a picture of in the book of Ruth. The kinsman redeemer, God is the kinsman redeemer of his inheritance, Israel. He will vigorously plead their case so that he may bring rest to the earth. And I'll point this out to the phrase, the earth there is literally the land. You know that Israel today is called Eretz Israel to the Jewish people. Eretz is the land, the land of Israel. So the complete name of the nation state of Israel is Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. When you see this word, the earth, it's so that he may bring rest to the Eretz, the land. Probably referring to rest to the land of Israel. But turmoil to the inhabitants of Babylon. Note this verse 35, a sword against the Chaldeans, declares the Lord, and against the inhabitants of Babylon, and against her officials and her wise men. A sword against the oracle priests, and they will become fools. A sword against her mighty men, and they will be shattered. A sword against their horses, and against their chariots, and against all the foreigners who are in the midst of her. That word foreigners, it's a mixed multitude of people from all around the world living there in Babylon. And they will become women. A sword against her treasures, and they will be plundered. A drought on her waters, and they will, note this, be dried up. For it is a land of idols, and they are mad over fearsome idols. The witness of history. What really happened at the fall of Babylon in 539? Herodotus tells us that Cyrus, Cyrus, named by Isaiah, 150 years before his birth, God says, Cyrus, my shepherd, is going to do my will. So Cyrus comes along and he diverted the waters of the Euphrates. You see, Babylon was impregnable. You could not get in. It said that six chariots could ride side by side atop the wall that surrounded Babylon. It was so wide. It was huge. Massive protection. There was so much food and stores in the city storehouses that it said Babylon could go literally decades There was land within the city walls for planting crops and harvesting, fields inside the city. They could live on in perpetuity there. Water coming from the Euphrates because the Euphrates went into under under the wall, went through channels right down into the city. You could not get in. But Cyrus, in brilliant military strategy, diverted the Euphrates River. He, He basically began to dug a channel to spill out into an area that turned into a large lake. And his men, as the Euphrates water came down, walked right under the wall, right through the channels. They made their way into the center of the city. Well, Belshazzar, the king at that time, was the king's son at that time, holding a stupid feast, drinking and using the vessels of gold from the temple in Jerusalem. And they go right in and they conquer the city so quickly that it wasn't even known in the center of the city until it was done. It was over. It happened that fast. But note this, it says, drought on her waters and they will be dried up. Cyrus did not dry up the waters. The water level went way down. And in the diversion of the Euphrates, it it, it was mostly diverted, but not completely, and it was still mushy, sloshy water. it, It wasn't dried up. The Bible speaks of another time when the waters of the Euphrates will be dried up. I'll show you in just a minute. While some of this fits, and some of it truly does, some of the picture that's given fits the witness of history, it doesn't go far enough. 
What we read in the prophecy of Jeremiah 50 and 51 is far greater than the testimony of time tells us. Kidner in his uh, commentary writes, there's a problem of interpretation in that the fall of Babylon in 539 happened without a battle. The city was not attacked by, quote, a company of great uh, nations who would, quote, come against her from every quarter, uh, open up her granaries, pile her up like heaps of grain, and utterly destroy her. That is not what happened in 539. Nor did God's people have to run for their lives. When Cyrus entered, he came as a liberator to a city intact and in many quarters welcoming, thankful, glad that you kind of like similar in some ways to Iraq, at least at first when the big statue of Saddam Hussein was knocked down, when at first the residents seemed to be welcoming to our military because they had been liberated. And that was what happened. Fifty years later... Xerxes put down a rebellion that took place at Babylon, but even then the city survived. The city went on. It recovered. Babylon was not smashed and destroyed in a great battle as we've just described here in Jeremiah 50. No, in in 539, it began a process of a slow decline. A decline that would happen over time as the centers of power shifted to other places in the Middle East and then heading to the West. Its descent into what the Bible here describes as a wilderness, a parched land, and a desert, verse 12, was gradual. People still inhabited Babylon even in the first century. The Jewish people didn't go back to Judea fleeing for their lives from Babylon. They went when Cyrus gave Zerubbabel and Joshua permission. And then gave Ezra permission to take more people back to rebuild the temple. And then when Artaxerxes would give Nehemiah permission to go back and build the wall around Jerusalem. And in each time, each way, the people went back to the land by by, uh, allowance, by permission of the king, went back. It wasn't fleeing for their lives. But that's what's described here. So it's not lining up perfectly with history. What have we learned about Bible prophecy? It's literal. It's literal. When the Bible says Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, He was not betrayed for 29. When the Bible says He would be born at Bethlehem, Ephrathah, He was born at Bethlehem, Ephrathah. When the Bible says He would be pierced through for our transgressions, He was pierced through, hands, feet, and even side. The Bible is specific. I believe Revelation 18 describes the literal, final, to the letter fulfillment of the fall of Babylon. You may disagree with me. That's okay. We can still be friends. I have lots of friends who are wrong about things. (laughs) But what we see here is neither the wholeness of the Hebrews nor the witness of history filling out the bigger picture. It just doesn't quite get there. But let's go a little further. I'll report. You decide. Keep an eye out for the parallels. I'll call out a few, but there are more than I'm going to have time even to cover tonight. In Revelation 17 and 18, I'll just call them out. You might make a note in your Bible margins and go back and look at them later. Where did I stop? At the end of 50? Or did I get there? I didn't. Okay, let me read further. Here we go. Uh, Verse 39. Therefore, the desert creatures will live there along with the jackals. The ostriches will also live in it, and it will never again be inhabited. We've already said after the fall of Babylon in 539, it was inhabited all the way up to the first century. 
Okay? It will not be dwelt in from generation to generation. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah with its neighbors, declares the Lord, no man will live there, nor will any son of man reside in it. There's a lovely little suburb just outside of ancient Babylon today. Right in the region. And the Babylon talked about in Jeremiah 50 and 51 is not just the capital city, it's the whole region of Chaldea. Iraq. Which is a nation today. Verse 41. Behold, a people is coming from the north, a great nation, and many kings will be roused from the remote parts of the earth. The Medes and the Persians, right? Yeah, at that time. They seize their bow and javelin. They're cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea. They ride on horses, marshal like a man for the battle against you, O daughter of Babylon. The king of Babylon has heard the report about them, and his hands hang limp. Distress has gripped him, agony like a woman in childbirth. Ladies, no rejoicing at that. Behold, one will come up like a lion from the thicket of the Jordan to a perennially watered pasture. It's interesting because that parallels the judgment of Edom and the Edomites. It says the same thing. For in an instant I will make them run away from it and whoever is chosen I will appoint over it. For who is like me? And who will summon me into court? (laughs) Okay, stop right there. How many people summon God into court all the time? Well, if God would just prove this. Well, if God would just... Well, I don't, you know, agree with that. How, if God is so good, how could He allow all the arrogance of humanity that we try to call God to court? As though we had something we could say against Him, our Creator. And who then is the shepherd who can stand before me? Therefore hear the plan of the Lord which He has planned against Babylon and His purposes which He has planned against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely they will drag them off, even the little ones of their flock. Surely He will make them, He will make their pasture desolate because of them at the shout, Babylon has been seized, the earth is shaken, and an outcry is heard among the nations. Verse 1 of chapter 51, Therefore, uh, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am going to arouse against Babylon and against the inhabitants of Lebkamai the spirit of a destroyer. Lebkamai. Another name, kind of a, an interesting name for Babylon that the Lord applies here. Leb means heart. Kamai means those who rise up against me. It's the rebellious heart. He says, I am going to arouse against Babylon, against the inhabitants of the rebellious heart, the spirit of the destroyer. This has been Babylon's heart since day one. Babylon was founded by a man named Nimrod. And it's funny because today I'll use that as a negative. You Nimrod, what are you thinking, you know? Nimrod was a brilliant guy. Nimrod was a builder of multiple cities. Genesis 10 verse 8 says, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And I've noted this in the past, that word before in the Hebrew also means against. He was a mighty hunter against the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before or against the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. Four cities. That was the start of his kingdom. Nimrod was a big deal. He was a wily of opposing rebellious guy 
And it was through Nimrod that that seed of rebellion was planted such that Genesis 11.4, they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And so they built the Tower of Babel. By the way, just a point of interest, every time you see the word, the name Babylon in the Hebrew Scriptures, if you read it in the Hebrew, you know what it is? Babel. Babylon is the Greek transliteration of the name. But even here, where the judgment is given against Babylon, God in the Hebrew, the judgment's again against Babel. It's always been Babel. Babel, meaning gateway to God, or Babel, if it's spelled slightly differently in the Hebrew, uh, Babel means confusion. Which is exactly what God did to the languages at the Tower of Babel in that time of great rebellion. I will dispatch foreigners to Babel that they may winnow her and may devastate her land for on every side they will be opposed to her in the day of her calamity. Let not him who bends his bow bend it nor let him rise up in his scale armor so do not spare her young women devote all her army to destruction. He's talking now to the Babylonian army. They're not even going to move quick enough. They're not even going to be able to armor themselves. It happens so fast. They're caught so by surprise, which did happen historically. They will fall down slain in the land of the Chaldeans and pierced through in their streets. For neither Israel nor Judah has been forsaken by his God, the Lord of hosts, although their land is full of guilt before the Holy One of Israel. Flee from the midst of Babylon and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment, for this is the Lord's time of vengeance. The Lord's time of vengeance? which sounds awfully similar to the day of the vengeance of our God or the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of tribulation. He is going to render recompense to her. 